We lost fewer seats in the House of Representatives than any Democratic president's first midterm election in the last 40 years. Biden calling the results a good day for democracy and acknowledging voters nationwide sent a clear message. I'm prepared to work with my Republican colleagues. The American people have made clear, I think, that they expect Republicans to be prepared to work with me as well. And Across happy Sunday and welcome to The Deal. I'm your host, Ed Clark. It is Sunday, November 13th, and we're not normally here on Sunday. We're normally here on Saturday, but we decided to wait because we wanted to hear the rest of the election results. And it looks like we got some. And uh, you saw in the intro leading in, President Biden um, said he's happy about the outcome. I'm not. And I don't think Val Atkinson is. Hey, Val. <laughs> Welcome oh, back. Hey, to- how are you? You're reading my mind. I'm not totally happy either. Uh, and I'll tell you why a little later. Yeah, we got we got we got a lot of ground to cover here because a lot of things have happened in the last uh, four or five days. Uh, when we went to bed on Tuesday night, things did not look good at all for the Democrats in terms of holding on to the Senate and the House. Um, there were a lot of races that were being lost um, in some states where I thought we would do better. Democrats would do better. And I want to start in North Carolina before we go to some of these national races, because that's where we live. And, and one of the things that I, I had been thinking about North Carolina is to be sure, to be sure, we wouldn't lose every judicial race and we wouldn't lose the Senate race. Now, we picked up a couple of House seats, but that was due to, I think, the courts making the districts a little bit more even. And we ended up with a 7 7 split. So before I go too far down the road, can you explain to me, North Carolina? Uh, we, we may be the last best hope for the South, because if you look at the map, it is completely red everywhere from Virginia all the way to Florida and all the way across to Texas and back up to Missouri uh, and into the Midwest, into Iowa, Indiana. All those places are completely red if you look in the country. So it looks like the only place that's saving America from itself is the Northeast in <laughs> New England and the far west. But, but but tell me about North Carolina and your assessment of what happened here. North Carolina has been leaning red, Ed, for a long time, and now it's taking the big plunge. You know, I, I came back to North Carolina in 1982. And since that time, a lot of things have changed. Uh, in 84, uh, we saw the emergence of a Republican governor for the first time in, 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 in a few years. And then they began to sneak into the Council of State, those other races that are statewide that we elect every four years, Attorney General, uh, Secretary of, of X and Secretary of Y, uh, Secretary of State, things of that nature. And uh, then they've got to the commissioners, Commission of Labor, Commission of Agriculture, Commission of Insurance. Uh, now we are in a place that we have gotten to the point of, as they used to say, hind tit in farmer and la- farmer's language. We're in bad shape, Democrats are, in North Carolina. Because the Republicans outworked us, Ed. What they did... Instead of concentrating on the big ticket items, 
they went in for the judicial races. They went in for the uh, General Assembly, the legislative races. They start winning those kinds of races to give themselves a base from which to operate to do everything else. We, at that time, were concentrating solely on the high volume races, governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general. And we won most of those races most of the time. But we found out there were a lot of other races to be run, one, not to least of which was the congressional races, the US Senate and the US House of Representatives. And once they took over the legislature, they had a rough time, handed us a rough time dealing with gerrymandering because that's what they start doing and that affected not only the state house, but it affected uh, the congressional races too on the house side, the house of representatives on the federal yeah. side. So now we are reaping what they have sown and uh, things look pretty bad to answer your initial question. Things look pretty bad for the Democrats in North Carolina now. That's why you got a plain sweep. Nobody will ever have imagined that, Ed, going to bed on Monday night, that there will be a clean sweep in the judicial races, the statewide judicial races in North Carolina. Mean to tell me now, one Democrat running for statewide judicial office was any good to be elected for the state of North Carolina. And, and, and these races were not gerrymandered. That's the scary part. Mm -hmm. They were not gerrymandered. These were statewide races, Democrats, Republicans, independent, libertarians, unaffiliated, whatever. You had a chance to vote regardless. There were no districts involved in this. And North Carolina said they would prefer to have these uh, Republican people on the judiciary, and they would prefer to have somebody named Bud to be their senator. These were non-Germanic uh, races. Yeah. Well, you know, Val, the other part of it is, you know me, I'm a numbers nerd, and I started looking at the numbers, and uh, three and a half million people did not vote. And most of those three and a half million people were Democrats. Uh, that is just by nature of who's registered to vote in North Carolina, but also looked at who voted. The Republicans turned out in more than 50% of them who were registered to vote turned out and less than 50% of Democrats who were registered to vote turned out. That way you ended up with a 50% turnout rate in North Carolina. Some other states were, were a little bit higher than North Carolina. Uh, but, but the fact remains is there's seven almost seven and a half million registered voters in North Carolina. We're, we're the eighth or ninth most populous state. Uh, and we are, we are trending to be, I think, in big trouble in 24 if somebody like Mark Robinson is running for governor. So let's, let's wrap up North Carolina here. Let's talk about 24. I know we just finished 22. Well, talk about 24. You got Robinson, uh, Bud won. Like you said, they won all the judicial races. Is it is it that the only hope we have is for the Democrats to have a strong presidential candidate that may drag out some of these Democrats who sat on their hands? And I'm going to call out the Democrats specifically in Mecklenburg County. They had a terrible turnout. It was, it was in the 40%. 
uh, the triangle area where we live in in Workvale, uh, it was it was higher, but it always is higher in the triangle area, uh, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. Uh, it still wasn't great. It wasn't sixty percent. I think Orange County may have been the only one that was sixty percent. That's where Chapel Hill is. Uh, you know, and you have the more progressive people. So let let me let me not beat a dead horse here. Twenty four. Does it require a strong presidential candidate to drag out those Democrats who stayed at home this time? It would help. Uh, one of the things that we got to consider, Ed, as we look at those numbers that you uh, cited there, is that we have a robust voter registration drive compared to the Republicans. And we go out and sometimes the people that we pursue will go ahead and register just to get us off their backs. They have no intentions of voting. Uh, and we go out and we say, we've registered X. And then when Ed Clark takes a look at the numbers, uh, he sees that X amount of people were registered, but only Y showed up. Uh, well, uh, that's because some of those people that registered never intended to register in the first place. Many moved out of town. Many were, un, uh, were not eligible for other reasons, maybe incarceration or other, <laughs> whatever. Uh, but the, the problem is still on us. We have to have a better style of campaigning that gets those people that we have registered earlier out to vote. We've got to find out why you registered and didn't decide to vote. And we've got to go get them. I remember I was running the uh, election day war room back in 1992 when Bill Clinton was running. I was running that for the Democratic Party. And we had vans with loudspeakers on top. And as the election results would come in, we knew where the critical counties were. We even know where the, knew where the critical precincts were. And as the election results were coming in, if they didn't measure up to what we thought we needed from that county or that precinct, we sent the van out there with the loudspeakers knocking on doors. We knew where all the registered voters were. We got to get back to that sort of thing. We got to get back to ground, detailed, grunt work of getting out the vote. Nothing substitute uh, suffices except that. Yeah, you, that, that's a 100% search. I want to remind you, if you're, you're watching this, uh, this is The Deal. I'm your host, Ed Clark. That's Val Atkinson. Uh, you may be listening on one of the podcasts. Uh, so if you listen on Spotify, uh, Anchor, uh, Apple Podcasts, whatever, we appreciate it. Uh, please let people know and subscribe because uh, we want people to listen to us. <laughs> uh, you may get tired of us beating the dead horse about voting, but it proved this point, Val. I think, in, in again, in North Carolina, because now the Supreme Court of North Carolina is no longer uh, uh, a balanced at all, uh, not not even pretending to be, right? Now, uh, the last piece of North Carolina I want to deal with, because this has happened in other states, uh, and it's instructive, the legislature is not, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the governor can't stop a lot of what the legislature wants to do because you just won't have the kind of power that you need. Uh, so tell me the last piece here about North Carolina. Uh, are we a harbinger of the 
lack of, I want to say guts of the Democratic Party. I think Michael Moore said that. He said Democrats were wimpy and, and don't want to fight. Or is it that we still believe that we can compromise our way? Because in the opening clip, that's what Joe Biden said. He said, you know, I'm going to work with my Republican colleagues across the aisle. They've been nasty the last couple of decades. I don't necessarily want to work with a Mitch McConnell or Kevin McCarthy, but I mean, they were smart enough to go to the legislatures and win those and win those governor's seats. And they tried to win at the secretary of state level, those kind of places around the country. But in North Carolina, it's about one of the only places where they've actually been able to do it. Are we in trouble here? I think we are, Ed, and I'll tell you why. First of all, let's talk about the compromising strategy. You can only compromise with people, first of all, that you can trust, that you think they want to compromise, and that they are not using this opportunity for a full compromise to gain an advantage. That's first of all, and I don't think the Republicans are there. They have no interest in compromise. They have no interest in us winning some battles so they can win some battles. They want to destroy us. And Joe Biden, uh, well, he's too long in the tooth now to really change his stripes and that kind of thing. He'll go to his grave being a compromiser. But I think we're beyond that now. And I think we lose in many cases uh, because we're trying to compromise. Let's take this last election for an example. I think had Alito not leaked or had leaked this information about Dobbs' decision, I think Democrats loses a lot more races nationwide than what we did. The Dobbs decision energized people. It made them mad. It made them say, I'm going out to vote. This was not done based on some backroom compromise that made things happen in a, a, a nice bipartisan way. And we've got to get off of that track and we've got to go out to win. The military has a saying that I believe in because I'm an ex-military guy. It says the best way to negotiate is through strength. When you got the upper hand, then you can sit and talk to the guy and says, okay, what do you want? And I can tell you what I will allow and not. You go in there with hat in hand begging, saying, what do, you, what do I need to give you in order for you to just sit down and talk with me? That's no way to negotiate. They got the upper hand. So that's why I think we're in, we got problems dealing with a compromising president who wants to first compromise and then uh, see where we are uh, from there. I don't, I don't think this is the time nor the place in our political history, Ed, for the type of compromise that Joe Biden wants to get involved in. Well, there you go. You know what? I, I know we spent a lot of time on North Carolina in this segment, but I think it was one of the weird places, Val. Uh, and then we live here, too. A lot of places, you know, Democrats did well. Pennsylvania, uh, Fetterman won, and then Shapiro won for governor. The governor was able to hang on in Michigan. Uh, there was a lot of places where it would appear that the Democrats did okay, and I can understand national Democrats, you know, saying that they were pleased because they didn't lose as bad. One of the things I want to talk about when we come back in the break is, you know, all the pundits have predicted all this doom and gloom and the red wave, blah, blah, blah. I want to talk to you about 
you know, why we, and I think you said it uh, uh, in the weeks leading up to the election, it was not going to be a red wave. Uh, I did not feel it was going to be that way either. But what that punditry does to people, maybe it kept some people at home. I also want to talk about all those national races. So the Democrats do hold on to the Senate and we'll explain how that happened. So stay right there. We'll be right back after this message. If Democrats lose control of the House, it may largely be because of New York State, where Republicans have flipped four congressional seats. Democratic Congress member Sean Patrick Maloney suffered one of the most shocking losses Tuesday. He's the chair of the powerful Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. According to the Cook Political Report, Maloney is the first sitting House Campaign Committee chair to lose a race in 30 years. I want to be fearful every time I'm in an open area in a public place. I want to think about how completely vulnerable I am while I'm closing my eyes to pray at my place of worship. I enjoy practicing semi-annual lockdown drills with six-year-olds who don't fully understand what's happening. I like going to the movies and making a mental note of every exit in the theater to plan my escape. I hope that our set is interrupted by loud percussive sounds that cause the audience to scream in horror and run for their lives. I want to think of this dumpster as a hiding place for my kid. I enjoy when the only way a family member can identify their mutilated loved one is by the make of their shoes or a DNA test. I want to drop the carton of milk and eggs that I just bought and race frantically to a dingy back room where I'll be locked with 14 strangers for seven hours and no air conditioning until the police say it's okay to come out. I want to celebrate our nation's freedom by worrying that I'll end up bleeding out on the pavement while being trampled by terrified parade cops. I like that anyone can... Anyone can easily access... Weapons of destruction. Weapons of war. Designed to kill the greatest amount of... Greatest amount of people in the shortest... Of in the least amount of time. Just a little bit longer. We begin with breaking news now out of the U.S., where Democrats will hang on to control of the Senate after a midterm election victory in Nevada. Catherine Cortez Masto has defeated her Republican opponent, Adam Laxalt, who was endorsed by Donald Trump. It means the Democrats will continue to hold a majority in the Senate for the remainder of President Biden's term in office. Cortez Masto's victory is a huge win for Democrats and a blow to Republicans who had hoped for a red wave to give them the balance of power in both the Senate and the House of Representatives. Let's bring in Mike Hannity. And welcome back to our second segment of The Deal. It is Sunday, November 13th. Don't be confused. We were not here on yesterday, on Saturday. Uh, we were here last Monday. We did our first Election Eve special uh, where we tried to predict what was going on. And guess what? Val Atkinson was correct about North Carolina, 77. Now, he was not right about winning the lottery. So that's why we're still here. So Val, Val, on a serious note, on the way back in, we saw uh, the clip about Nevada. Nevada uh, uh, was kind of up in the air. Uh, uh, Paul Laxalt uh, looked like he may be able to uh, win in Nevada. He was an acolyte of Donald Trump. He did not win. And that gave the Democrats at least 50 seats. 
and we'll talk about the other seat that's still up in the air. Uh, talk to me about how important that win in Nevada was, uh, at least maintaining the 50-50. It was critically important, Ed, but not in the obvious way that uh, many people would think. You would think a lot of folks would say that, okay, that gave us the Senate. We retained the Senate. Oh, that's true. But more importantly, it, it gives us the opportunity to run the board in these three races. I cited the other day that we needed to win two out of three. Uh, and we did. Uh, we won those two, Nevada and, of course, uh, Arizona. So that part's over. But if we win the third race, which is the Warnock-Walker race, that gives us a one-senator edge to deal with the Joe Manchins and the Kristen Cinemas of the world. Uh, we got one more, that one less that we have to worry about. Uh, we have to go and get one of those guys instead of the two that we've been doing. That's why this race in uh, Georgia is so critically important. And, and not only that, we, we want uh, to really push to our youth that competency means something. We can't let a guy like Herschel Walker, who has no idea what the function of the Senate is, we can't let him become a U.S. senator. He has no idea that he's being used. He has no idea that right-wing Republicans want to use him to do bad things to people who look like him. He, he's just oblivious to that understanding. And so you can't let a guy like that represent an entire state like the state of Georgia. So for that reason, more so than anything else, folks around the country have got to do whatever they can do to assist uh, Reverend Warnock in winning this race, whether it's giving funds, going down to help out, whatever you need to do, do something to help out in that particular reason. You know, to that point, Val, here's a clip I want to show you. This is from local TV in Atlanta talking about uh, Warnock and uh, Herschel Walker. U.S. Senator Ted Cruz of Texas came to town to take the stage with him. The stakes in this race could not be higher. Walker said he's going to keep fighting because his opponent has not represented Georgians in Washington. Walker says all Warnock has done is represent President Biden. Less than two years, y'all see what he's done to this country. Less than two years, he's done it to you, and he's got to do it again. He has him for six more years. Are you ready to do this one more time? Raphael Warnock, who finished ahead of Walker with about 35,000 more votes, spoke to a crowd in downtown Atlanta. Warnock said his opponent isn't qualified for the job. Herschel Walker has no vision for our state or for our country. Think about it. We've been running now for a little while. And he has yet to tell us what he actually wants to do. Both candidates agree it's going to be a rough fight to the finish. They are going to throw. So, uh, Val, <laughs> Hershel, oh, God bless him. I know his mama loves him, right? So at least that, right? And But I, 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 when you look at that audience of people there, it's a 
completely white audience. Uh, I think they're cynical. They know Herschel Walker, like you said, is not competent. And then Reverend Warnock, you know, he has to be honest. He says, look, this guy is not senatorial material, number one. Number two, he hasn't articulated any kind of plan. But isn't that the larger problem with the Republicans over the last six, seven years, at least, you know, the last two uh, presidential cycles? They didn't really have a platform other than Democrats bad, Republicans good, which is basically what Walker's speech was there. I mean, is that is that what they've come down to? Is that that's the only thing they can say? They they have been distilled down to exactly that, Ed. They don't have a plan. They don't have a platform. They don't have a vision. All they have is Democrats bad, as you said, and I am the default candidate. So if you don't vote for this crazy, no good guy over here, I'm the guy you've got to vote for. This is a time when I wish we had multiple parties running. That would destroy almost totally uh, the Republican game plan because then they would have to tell you why you should vote for me. And they don't do that now. All they do is tell you why you should not vote for the other guy. And uh, we have too many uh, people in the United States of America who fall for that. And they walk around talking about uh, bloodletting and pedophile Democrats and all of all of this, you know, QAnon stuff, and because they've been led to believe that, because the people that are spewing that don't have a plan as to how you're going to address issues that Americans face, and they are getting away with it, and that's a shame. Well, to that point, here's a clip of a lady within the last 48 hours, knowing that the Republicans were not going to probably retain this, and you're not sure at that point, I guess, when this interview was done. But she's explaining why she thinks the Democrats are bad. Let's look at this. What about former President Trump and, you know, not being terribly religious, not being a church? He believes in God, you know, so there you have it. You think President Biden believes in God? No, not at all. He worships the devil. So I see. So that, that and that's the difference between the two is that one worships God and one worships the devil. And how do you see that manifested in President Biden. It's showing. No, I mean, I guess in, in what, where do you see the devil worship come out in President Biden? All over, all over the country, like everywhere. It's everywhere. So I guess, tell me a little bit more. I know you're saying it's all over the country. I'm just curious how, how, how like specifically, where do you see like, oh, that's because President Biden worships the devil, that blank. Child sex trafficking, the schools, kids, you know, it, it, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And do you think President Biden's responsible for child sex trafficking? Yes. You do? In, in what ways? So, Val, she says Joe Biden is of the devil. And it's because of child sex trafficking. Now, we saw that as a big part of the campaign in North Carolina. A lot of the early ads against Sherry Beasley were that she supported child sex trafficking and the stuff she did on the court. 
should I be afraid of that lady that we just saw there? Or should I feel sorry for? Or how do I deal with people like that who she is completely committed to this bonkers bananas theory that Joe Biden is of the devil and that he supports child sex trafficking? What do you do with those people? This is where I really wish that I had the power, Ed, to change social media and 24-hour news services. Because before social media and 24-hour news services, we didn't have this kind of mess, this kind of junk. Uh, but now this is all you see uh, because we have to fill the airways with something and those people go and they find something that they think interesting that will uh, get hits as the young folks call it and, and get airtime. So uh, the big boys, they see dollars coming because they're talking about ad dollars. The more hits you get, uh, the, the more money you get for charging uh, airspace and that sort of thing. But I, I think that lady uh, position is, I think we do ourselves a disservice when we argue with people like that. I mean, take it back to our 20, 30, 40 years ago, Ed, when we saw somebody on the playground or in the community or whatever that was way, way off base, bordering on being committed, you know, uh, we didn't sit there in the town square and argue with them about their positions. Their positions were crazy. We found a elegant, nice, decent way to ignore them without embarrassing them or doing anything else harmful to them and move on to something else that was more powerful to us. Social media, 24-hour news service, that's all they do. Uh, Republicans made a mint during the 22 elections by convincing uh, social media and 24-hour news service that they needed to continue to ratchet up and re-repeat, if that's a word, re-repeat their talking points. It, now they don't even have to spend money on their talking points because they got the media reporting on it as though that's news when they should be ignoring that person mm -hmm. and, and getting around it. And uh, that's where we are now. It's, it's not you, it's not, I, it's not me. It's, it's, it's a trend in social media and 24-hour news service. And everybody does it at some point. Yeah. It's, it's a disease. It's a virus. And it has infected us all. Yeah, I want to remind you, you're watching The Deal. If you're watching on the pod, the video podcast, if you're listening to the audio podcast on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, whatever, uh, we appreciate it. Please share with other folks. Uh, we're talking about the postmortem on the 2022 midterm elections. Democrats did much better than they, they expected to. But that's what I want to talk about next, Val, is did they do better than they were expected to? One of the things that we talked about on our um, election eve special was this whole notion that these polls actually mean something. Uh, maybe there was a time that they did, but they probably mean even less now because did you get any calls to be in any polls this time around? And if you did, who was calling? And a lot of the polls that got cited were from right-wing sources. And so all they kept talking about was this a red wave. 
Uh, do, do you have any suspicion at all where that comes from uh, the, the media's uh, desire to always make this a horse race and to, you know, use these poll companies and all these supposed pundits. I guess I suppose we're pundits too, right, to some degree, but, and we're partisan too, and I make no apology for it. I mean, this is what our show is, but for people who try to pretend like they're not partisan and then say they know what the outcome is going to be, and then, and then for the national media to use those uh what's the effect of that because i know you used to teach media politics and those kind of things you know uh and you talked a little bit about how the media you know makes a lot of money off of it but even more than that like i said is it time for these polls to be just completely discarded altogether well what you have to i wish again that we had could force feed uh civic lessons to the public but we can't do that uh they, they don't understand them uh, I wish people could go and volunteer or be told that they had to take a course in uh, poll polling and take a course in political science statistics or whatever you need to do to find out how this stuff is done. Uh, you know, what are independent and dependent variables and all this other kind of junk. Find out how they run polls and how they select the subjects and how many people need to be included for it to be a viable uh, study and that sort of thing. Uh, and you will find out that in many cases, there's a thing called a push poll. That means the people who are designing the questions in the poll already have a predetermined answer. And their job is to lead you to that answer. They ask you a lot of closed-in questions. And in the business, a closed-in question requires a yes or no answer only. Is are, you know, uh, do, those kinds of words that start sentences, you're only going to give me a yes or no answer. And it doesn't give you time to answer it like if you would start saying why or what, then you can pontificate uh, uh, your answer on those kind of things. These are the kind of things that people need to understand, how polls are done. Each party has pollsters. And they do, each party does push polling. So when you take a look at a poll, you need to know what the origination is before you trust the outcome of that poll. I wish the media would spend some time going over that before they publish the polls on their networks. They need to say, okay, this is how polls are run. This is what they did to gather the data that they have. This is how they did the longitude in the study and the cross tabs and all of this other kind of stuff. And this is what they came up with. They don't want to do that. They just want to take the shortcut and say, this is what you as an American is thinking. You say, I don't think that. And then a lot of people do what you do just did. You say, nobody called me, you know? And they, they, they'll, they'll interview 1,066 people and say that represents the entire country. I don't, you know, a lot of, I don't know very many people who believe that. <laughs> yeah, especially not now, because like I said, you don't, nobody answers their phone when somebody's calls that they don't know anymore. Uh, back in the day, you had to, your house phone didn't show who was calling, right? You just right. picked it up and answered it. Anyway, before we, before we run out of time in this segment, I got one other question for you. 
Uh, I'm going to show you a clip about Arizona, and I want you to explain to me why in the hell it takes Arizona 499 days to count votes. Uh, here's about Arizona. Some of the other numbers so far tonight, the race for Secretary of State also just officially called for Democrat Adrian Fontes after this latest ballot drop tonight. Uh, he takes down Republican Mark Fincham. All right, right now, 275,000 ballots across the state still need to be counted. So there is a lot still out there on the table. This could all change. It could. But tonight, about 75,000 ballots were added to Maricopa County's election results. The majority of those ballots were the ones that were dropped off on Election Day. Those early ballots dropped off on Election Day. And again, here's the latest results for the governor's race. Carrie Lake still trailing Katie Hobbs. Katie Hobbs has 50.7% of the vote. Carrie Lake, 49.3%. So it is still close. Katie Hobbs now leading by about 31,000 votes. Checking in on the area. Arizona Attorney General. So Val, in Arizona, Mark Kelly wins for Senate, which is good because they figured that there's not enough outstanding votes left for the Republican to catch up. Another Trump acolyte, right? The governor's race is still too close to call, but the Democrat is up by a little bit. Uh, but we're almost a damn week into this. Arizona has I don't know, a uh, couple of million people voting, right? Uh, it, it's half the number of people in Arizona than there is in North Carolina, but but they can't count any damn votes. Uh, uh, what, what, uh, why is it like that in some states? Why don't we have a national standard for elections? Why do you think that is? I have a good answer. I think, but why do you think we don't have a national standard for elections? Tenth Amendment, states' rights. Each state is arguing that it's the right of my state to conduct elections as I see fit. And when these elections go on uh, within the various states, what they are saying is that this is the way Arizona votes. This is the way Kentucky feels, and this is how North Carolina wants to cast its vote. And so it'll be difficult to take that away. I think you almost need a constitutional amendment uh, to adjust or get rid of the 10th Amendment before you could even uh, touch that at all. That being said, something has to be done because clearly states like Arizona have people in it that want to overturn elections that they don't win. That's the bottom line. That's what's going on. They want to hire, uh, where they want people to win uh, in the positions of Secretary of State and Governor and places like that and uh, General Assemblies so that they can look at the results of a race and their guy didn't win and they won't certify. And they'll call for a new election or throw it into the legislature or whatever it happens to be so you can't win. That is their long-term strategy. Now, right now in this race, uh, there's a few more, uh, a lot more uh, votes still out there. They are hoping that they find, they know that there ain't enough votes there probably to overturn the, the trend of this particular gubernatorial election or the senatorial election. But they are hoping they could find something like fraud. They are hoping they could find something that would make it 
viable to say, let's have a redo. We, we can't accept any of this stuff. So we are going to have a revote. And that's all you need to do to kill democracy is start a path where your vote didn't count and we got to redo it over and over again until they, whoever they is, uh, gets the right results that they look for in the beginning. That's yeah. the path of democracy. Well, there you go. Well, this is a good place to take a break. When I come back, uh, Val, I want you to think about two things. I want you to think about the future of the Republican Party and the future of the Democratic Party. And uh, because this election is over, 24 is on the way, uh, and there's going to need to be uh, some strong leadership on the national level in both parties for there to be a difference we made. So you guys stay right there. We'll be right back after this message. I was an it girl in my late 20s. Life was full. I never let it stop me from keeping up with my regular cervical cancer screening. I was in my car when I saw my doctor's name pop up on my phone. When he told me the biopsy came back with precancerous cells, it was like all the sound in the world faded out. I had a procedure to remove precancerous cells. If I hadn't found out about the precancerous cells, I may not have the quality of life I have today. I think we're going to have to do a lot of soul searching and, you know, head scratching and, and, and looking through and parsing the numbers as to why we didn't perform as well as we would have liked to have. Why do you think it is? I mean, I think Trump's kind of a drag on our ticket. I think I think Donald Trump um, gives us problems politically. We lost the House, the Senate and the White House in two years when Trump was on the ballot or in office. And I think we just have some Trump, Trump hangover. I think he's a drag on our on our on our offices. I think Governor DeSantis is the biggest single winner of the night, and he will almost certainly become uh, the rallying point for everybody in the Republican Party uh, who wants to uh, move beyond President Trump, uh, which would make for a, a pretty remarkable race. You heard Paul Ryan, you heard Newt Gingrich, you've heard a slew of others uh, saying this is Donald Trump's fault, we have to move on. Not so easy, of course, but what's your assessment of what happened on Tuesday night? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt they're both wrong. They're both correct, I guess, in a way. I think DeSantis is now kind of the anti-anti-Trumpers or the that group's like candidate now, the savior, you know, for them. I think there's no doubt that Donald Trump is a drag. But I think the thing we miss in, in talking about that is why is Donald Trump still even a thing? It's too And welcome back to our third and final segment of the deal. I'm Ed Clark. This is Val Atkinson. We've been talking our post-mortem on the 2022 midterm elections that Democrats uh, did better than all the pundits, except for Val Atkinson, he, he called it right. Uh, but uh, uh, on a serious tip, on the way back in Val, we saw Adam Kinzinger, who is on the way out. He was one of the few Republicans who did not uh, get along with Donald Trump. He called him out. He was on the one six committee, blah, blah, blah. And he said that the Republican Party can't go on with the Donald Trump. And then there's been other Republicans. If you watch some of the Sunday shows this morning, some of the other Republicans were calling out Donald Trump, saying that he's a liability for the party. And then you got this guy named Rick uh, uh, DeSantis uh, down in, uh, or DeSantis down in Florida, Governor DeSantis down in Florida, who, uh, Trump called the sanctimonious. <laughs> I think is what he called. It. What 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 is it? 
the future of the Republican Party. I have called them dead for the since Donald Trump came down the escalator. I, I think the party was dead at that point. But talk to me uh, on a real tip about what the Republican Party is now and what it's likely to be in two years. Well, I think they need a redo. They need a do-over, as we just finished talking about. I think there needs to be some type of marriage between uh, Hensiger and uh, the gentleman who was the campaign manager for John McCain. Uh, and I think he's uh, got something called the Lincoln Project now. First name is Steve. Schmidt. Right. Uh, Steve and, and uh, Smith and Kensinger need to get together. I think that's the foundation of a new base here. There are people who are on the fence in the Republican Party who could see a place that they could find with Kensinger and Smith and, and build it broader, build it outward and call themselves something else and just let the Republican Party die on the vine. Let Donald Trump have it. I don't think you can try to resurrect or redo the Republican Party and call it the new Republican Party. That, as long as it's called Republican, you got a sizable uh, a number of folks in the United States of America now who don't want no part of it. I mean, current Republicans who don't want no part of it. So in order to save the party, and I'm talking about saving the ideology and philosophy of conservatism that the party is supposed to stand for. In order to save all of that, they're going to have to go through a name change and they're going to have to go through different types of leadership uh, to make it happen. There's no other way out. Democrats, on the other hand, I think Democrats are going to have to grow a pair. They, they're going to have to become tougher. And now is the time to do that because if Joe Biden gets out at the end of, of, of his first term voluntarily or involuntarily, or if he gets out at the end of a second term. I think that will be the end of the Democrats swimming upstream in this so-called compromised bipartisanship body of water. We've got to stop that. We've got to get out of there. We've got to grow up there. We got to tell people what we stand for. We got to make them understand that we stand for this. We stand for you. We will fight against anything that's against that, that we stand for. We will not just compromise it away. We will fight for it, okay? And uh, if you go that way, you should be able to sit down and talk with people like Kinsinger and Smith to talk about how do we move forward as two new parties? And forget about the old Republican Party. Forget about the old Democratic Party of compromises and weakness. Forget about those two guys and go down the road singing a new song. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I think the Republican Party, as it's constituted now, they started having problems for me uh, in 1968 when, they, when, they, when the, the takeover occurred where the uh, Southern white folks didn't have anywhere to go when it was clear that the Dixiecrats were never going to be a national party, they just took over the Republican Party. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and what makes you 
makes it clear to me that they don't care about what uh, any philosophy or anything other than to maintain status quo with uh, uh, white supremacy and some other stuff is it was clear to me that they never addressed people like Trent Lott and Jesse Helms and all that. They, they, they still talk about Ronald Reagan as if he was the best thing ever. And he was not for a lot of black and brown folks. Uh, so to me, that Republican party uh, that got constituted in 68 uh, was uh, bankrupt morally from the beginning. And then you've seen that they've had some problems with their presidents, a la uh, Richard Nixon and Donald Trump, uh, the, the, the impeach crew. Uh, <laughs> you know, Donald Trump, I mean, he's broken all kind of records, being multiple impeached, that kind of thing. Let's talk then about the Democrats. You said they have to be less wimpy, uh, but they also have to have some new blood because you said that, and we know this clearly, we, we see it every time Joe Biden comes out there. He's not a young man. Barack Obama can't run anymore. Kamala Harris is not getting the kind of play I think she deserves. Let's look at this guy and you tell me what, what you know about him and what you think about him. Yeah. And in Maryland, it's governor-elect Westmore. Democrats' other big flip last night. He's become just the third black elected governor in U.S. history and the fourth overall and the first black governor of Maryland. What an amazing night and what an improbable journey. But you believed. You believe that in this moment, our state could be bolder. And it's not lost on me that I've made a little history tonight myself as well. And Maryland. So, Val, that's Wes Moore, uh, former military, uh, started out in community college in Maryland. <laughs> then he goes to the military, comes out, gets a degree, uh, gets involved in politics, Got a pretty family, uh, a, a, a bit Obama-esque in that standpoint. Long married a long time. Uh, 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 and, and I know this is going to sound bad. He's very articulate, you know, because white people like to say that about us whenever we talk good. But he does. He presents very well. Uh, is a West Moore uh, the future of the Democrats? Is that what the Democrats need? more people like a Westmore? Absolutely, yes. That's what's going to do it. Because you don't have anything anywhere else to rely on. I mean, that that's the avenue. Uh, Westmore is a rising star right now. And so goes Westmore, so goes the Democratic Party to a degree. Uh, because as you said, and I agree, Ed, uh, Camilla Harris is great and that sort of thing. But I've said time and time again, that I thought she would have been better sitting on the Supreme Court or being the attorney general uh, for for the Biden administration. Uh, I, I just didn't see her as a vice president doing anything. Vice presidents cannot outshine presidents. It's not set up that way. So people got used to it and, and expecting her to do things, and she just can't do it. But I think Westmore is the ticket. We've got to look around and find other people like a Westmore uh, that can make things happen, that have won local races already, uh, that are ready to move up to the next level. 
and make it good. One of the other things we, we've got to do also, Ed, we got to find comfortable places for people like Stacey Abrams, okay? We've got to make sure we just don't kick her to the curb. She's done too much for not only African-Americans, but the entire Democratic Party. So we've got to find nice places for her. And that's when I say find nice places, I don't see Stacey Abrams as a Westmore type. I don't see Stacey Abrams as running for president in 24 or 28. I just don't see that. Uh, she's almost damaged. She's won, lost two straight gubernatorial races. And, but she is great at what she does. So there's gotta be a place for her, whether it's on the Supreme Court or whether it's someplace else, I don't know, but she's she's gotta be around to help us out. So we, we've got to have our ear to the ground and we've got to be looking for these young folks coming in and coming through that we can identify and ask them, hey, have you considered a career in politics? I got some people I need to introduce you to. Uh, you need to be on uh, the deal with Ed Clark. He, you need to have that show in your background. <laughs> we need you need to uh, sit down with Val Atkinson and try to write another book or whatever. But seriously speaking, Ed, we've got to find these people and connect them to the right people and put them on the right path and let's go. Uh, we found out that the Jesse Jackson path, the Al Sharpton path is good, but it may not lead to the presidency, okay? We find that the, the, the Doug Wilder, uh, the Deval Patrick and the Westmore path is a little better. Okay, these are the three people that are African American have been elected to the position of governor in the state in in the United States of America. The only three, and we've had many Jesse Jacksons and many Al Sharptons, but you know the people don't say yes to these kind of people. And I put in that category also the Reverend Dr. Warnock. Uh, he's good where he is. I hope he stays in the Senate for many, many more elections, many more terms, I'm sorry. But I don't think that he is a presidential type, okay? So what we've got to do is identify these people who are great at helping us, but more importantly, finding the right place for these people because if we misplace them uh, and then they lose and everybody's upset, you didn't support my candidate and I ain't supporting yours. She deserves this. It's her time. Uh, we can't afford that kind of infighting. No, we can't, Val. And, uh, you know, I think that's a good place to end it because I think that's a little more hopeful. Uh, like I said, when we were here last week, we had no idea uh, where we would be, what the outcome would be. The, the house is still up for grabs. Uh, the last numbers I saw, Val, the prediction was that the Republicans were only going to have a one or two seat majority over in the House, in which may spell doom for Kevin McCarthy because he may not be able to get enough people to vote for him to be the speaker. I, 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 maybe by the time we come back next week, we can look at what those rules are for speakership if we know who's going to win. But my understanding is it doesn't even have to be from the party that has the majority necessarily. You don't have to have a majority of everybody to win the speakership. 
apparently. And it looks like Kevin McCarthy doesn't even have his whole caucus behind him. So that'll be that'll be interesting. So, uh, you know, like we always do, we try to ask you what's coming up in the coming week or something we need to look forward to. Val, tell me something good or something. Yeah, well, Thanksgiving is good for everybody. It's coming up and I'm going to eat a lot of turkey. I can tell you that. But the week after that, I celebrate another birthday on uh, November 30th. That, and I'll tell you what, that puts me 10 days younger, exactly, 10 days younger than Joe Biden. Joe Biden was, was born on the 20th of November 1942. I was born 10 days later. He was a little earlier than me. So other than that, there's not a lot of difference, okay? Joe Biden's yeah. a baby, guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. So I will celebrate that. And uh, me and Ed Clark and two or three other uh, good friends of mine, we're going to go out and celebrate on the 30th, celebrate that grand birthday, and uh, look forward to coming back and uh, doing another deal with Ed Clark. Well, I, I, I can't. I'm looking forward to that celebration. I'm, I'm just hoping that I make it to 80. Uh, I'm hoping I make it to 70 at this point. So the way I feel sometimes in the morning when I wake up, I have bones creaking and all that stuff. Anyway, look, folks, uh, it looks like it's a nice day outside, at least where we are. The sun's out, maybe a little chilly uh, because it should be. We're we're not in the summertime anymore. We're in the fall. So go out and do something good for somebody today and then come back with us next week for another edition of The Deal. Bye.